John chapter 2. We did a pretty thorough Bible study on Sunday on um, the Lord turning the water into wine. But let's go through the first 10 verses again. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Let's just stop there and remind you. Uh, Sunday we talked about a Jewish wedding. It lasted for seven days. During this time, the bride and the groom were not seen. Uh, he would have already made a legal agreement with the father of the bride. And um, he would go and prepare a place for them to live during their honeymoon at their father's house. While they were inside the honeymoon suite, the family and friends would celebrate the marriage for a full seven days, and then they would be introduced as husband and wife to their guest. Uh, This is a type or a model of the marriage supper of the Lamb. After the rapture, uh, we are taking to be with our bridegroom, Uh, After the seven-year tribulation period, we return. We quoted uh, Jude chapter, uh, there's only one chapter in Jude, Jude 14. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his saints. We return as the bride of Christ. We talked a little bit about um, uh, the meaning of of wine in the Bible. Uh, Wine is a symbol many times of joy. And we're going to read the amounts of these six pots, some 20, um, uh, how, how, let's see, 20 to 30, um, well, let's, oh, I'll get to that because I can't fight right off at, at the top here. Anyway, um, they didn't have the wine that had run out, so Mary, in verse four, says, um, the Lord said, to her son, they have no wine. She's implying something because in verse four, the Lord says, woman, what does your concern, you might want to underline your concern have to do with me. Now here, um, the Lord says this to Mary. Mary's reasoning for wanting the wine is now the family and friends would finally know and believe that her pregnancy was from God. All this time. Um, Go to John 8, we turned this on, on Sunday, verse 41. Not only did not the family members believe, but the religious leaders in John eight forty one said, uh, you do the deeds of your father, and they recanted and said to him, well, we're not born of fornication. The implication is you, you are. And so Mary had lived with this stigma, uh, all the whispering, um, all the back talk, all, the, all this going on. And um, basically, she had a ruined reputation. So when the Lord says, what does your, your concern have to do with me? 
um, her concern was, all you have to do is take this water and turn it into wine. Everybody will know that you're the Messiah, and I've been telling the truth all along. Uh, But the Lord doesn't use that. I mentioned that my hour has not yet come. It occurs seven times in the Gospel of John. That should be meaningful to you. We went to uh, chapter 17, verse 1, where the Lord says, for the last time, my hour has come. And that would have been the seventh time, and that's significant because the Gospel of John is written around seven miracles and seven I am statements. So we go on her, so she says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons. That's what I was looking for. So why so much wine? Well, again, this is not a one-day event like we would have at a wedding today. This would go on for a week, and it was not unusual over a week's time for the wine to, to run out. So they had these six pots. And um, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, notice what's in parentheses here. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. So nobody saw the miracle except the people who were behind the scenes. They saw it. And in verse 10, he said, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests were well drunk, then that which is inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. Now on Sunday, I did not want this to be misunderstood where it says when the guests were well drunk as if they were intoxicated. Clearly, that, that is uh, um, not the case. This was a joyful event and drunkenness is clearly talked about uh, in the old um, as a major sin, but also in the New Testament. So we made that clear on Sunday that that wasn't the point. Verse 11, the result of of this miracle, this was the first of the seven miracles in the Gospel of John, the turning the water into wine. The result is in verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. And after this he went down to Capernaum. Um, He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples and they did not stay many days. Uh, if you'd like an in-depth, we, we got into the whole story of a Jewish wedding, and um, if you want to get that, you can pick up the CD afterwards. Now, this brings us to verse 13. And now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and the Jews went up to Jerusalem. Uh, here we have sort of a geographical point. He started out at Cana of Galilee, went to Capernaum, and now he's in Jerusalem. Notice that John labels this feast the Jews' Passover. 
It is no longer the Lord's Passover, which is found in Exodus 12, verse 27, if you're taking notes. This is the Jews' Passover. In other words, merely a religious feast, quite meaningless, just a ritual to go through. The one of whom the Passover speaks has now come. I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Our Lord went to Jerusalem. This was not at the beginning of his public ministry, but probably at the end of the first year. If you were a male, you were required to go to Jerusalem three times a year for the Feast of Passover, this one, for the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called Sukkot. He went up for the Passover, which was about April 14th. So we see that John is giving us... um, where he was, Cana, Capernaum, and now verse 13, we're in Jerusalem. Um, And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers. And this is gonna be a major point tonight. They were doing business. We might even come back to this point. What they were doing was business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the ox, poured over the money changers' table, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Let me tell you what I wanted to do tonight because we just read over something and we can sometimes read over something and just really miss the impact of what's happening. And I'm looking around, I probably, I'm not seeing any youth. I was concerned if I did this, it would really freak out some young kids. And uh, they talked me out of it anyway in the back room. I was gonna set a table up right there, a plastic one. And then I was gonna stop at this point of the Bible study Go and take that table and throw it right at Jerry Ron. Turn it over. And then, with my voice elevated, get out of here. And so we can read this verse here. This this is the, um, the, the reasoning for this. The Lord is not mad. The reason is given to us in um, uh, verse 17, and I'll come back and explain this verse more detail. Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Um, Psalm 69, verse nine, and I'll be coming back to that. But I figured if I really did that, it would get your attention and you'd probably have a whole different understanding of what's happening here. That's exactly what the Lord did. And uh, um, where where I wanna take my first little sidetrack tonight is explain to you what the Lord was so, uh, they had, turned it into a house of merchandise. What is meant by that? Well, if you came from, let's say, Rome, and you were Jewish and you um, were gonna buy an offering, that in order to buy it, you had to use the temple shekel. So they have one of the first things, we had a meeting on Sunday for um, uh, Israel, and uh, we've had questions about the exchange and we began to talk about money changers. That's what's taking place here. The ones who were in charge of it 
were the religious leaders. They were doing business. They would take your, your Roman coin and they would exchange it as a money changer would and uh, you would get a temple shekel and then you could buy your lamb or if you were poor, it would have been a couple of turtle doves but you couldn't use your own money. You had to exchange it. Well, this was a racket and the Lord is simply so upset that they would take a house of prayer and use it for merchandising. And this is, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. And don't think he wasn't serious about what he was doing. He has a whip in his hand. And he really was turning over um, these tables, and he was driving them out. All right, Um, this is where I'm going to do a little detour. And... um, The disciples remembered this verse from 69, verse 9. This psalm is quoted 17 times in the New Testament and is one of the six most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Psalm 69, verse 9. The zeal for your house has eaten me up. Uh, With my sidetrack, I'm going to have you turn to the book of Revelation. And while you're turning... I'm going to talk about those who are in the church today that are doing exactly the same thing. And um, I want to talk about uh, the word faith movement. I've I've talked about it often from here, but I want to give you the people that are associated with it again because nothing has really changed. And um, let me read off my notes here. At the heart of the word of faith movement is the belief in the force of faith. It is believed words can be used to manipulate the faith force and thus actually create what they believe scripture promise, health and wealth. Laws supposedly governing the faith force are said to operate independently of God's sovereign will and that God himself is subject to these laws. This is nothing short of idolatry, turning our faith, and by extension ourselves, into God. Now I'm going to quote Kenneth uh, Hagen, uh, where he states, and I'm, this is a quote from him, it is not God's will for any to be sick. So I'm a little out of God's will tonight. <laughs> I believe that it is the plan of our Father that no believer should be sick, that every believer should live his life to full time and actually wear out if Jesus tarries and fall asleep in Jesus. I state boldly that it is not the will of God, my Father, that we should suffer with cancer, any other deadly disease, uh, have pain or anguish. No, it's God's will that we should be healed. And then they quote the verse, by his stripes we are healed. Here's what's interesting, is that the people who are called word of faith teachers do not seem to have any of a lesser ratio of cancer and sickness than others. These ministers know one another, they teach the same doctrine, they they share the same notes, and sickness is common among them and their families. It is unusual for a specific group that teaches the same doctrine of healing to have a higher percentage of their families to be struck with cancer. 
Is God telling them something? Are they or their followers taking notice? Question. No, that would be a negative confession. See, there's power in your words. And what you say is what you get. So don't ever say anything negative or bad because it'll come to pass. Now, um, this is, uh, of course, crazy. Um, Some of these people that I'm going to mention are no longer alive but are dead. But uh, here's, um, I would call them the kingpins that you'd probably recognize their name. Ernest Angley is one. Uh, Morris Cirillo, uh, Kenneth Copeland, Paul Crouch has passed, but he was one. Sephiro Dollar, how is that for a name for a health and wealth uh, guy? Kenneth Hagen, Marilyn Hickey, Benny Hinn, uh, Brian Houston uh, from With Love Song, Rodney Howard Brown, T.D. Jakes, uh, Fred Price, Joseph Prince, or Roberts has passed, but he was one. Robert Schuller's passed, he was one. Robert Tilton, Paula White, Ed Young. These are all people that have uh, thousands and thousands of people uh, that are following their teachers, uh, this teaching of this prosperity doctrine. Uh, basically, if you're in uh, the book of Revelation, we're going to do a sidetrack and we're actually going to talk about business. We're going to talk about money. As we read, um, we got up to verse, no, for the zeal of your house has eaten me up. All right, uh, if you're in Revelation chapter three, let me draw your attention to the last church of Laodicea. I believe there's a chronological order here. If you start with uh, Ephesus, that would represent the first um, hundred years of the church, then you would go to Smyrna, which was 100 AD to 300 AD, a very uh, persecuted period of time for the church. Millions were killed. Uh, The catacombs were uh, made during this period of time. Um, And you can follow it all the way down. I believe that four of these churches will exist in the last days because of the phrase that the Lord uses with Philadelphia, um, Laodicea, Thyatira, and Sardis, it goes, do this until I come. And the implication here is that the church of Laodicea will be in existence when the Lord comes again. So what does it look like? Verse 14, to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Here's why. Because you say, I am rich. I have become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. That was their self-assessment of the church, that we're rich, We're wealthy, we have need of nothing. And you do not know the Lord's perspective, which was you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and your white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyes that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke, 
and chastise, therefore be zealous and repent. Repent of what? Repent for having this attitude that you're wealthy and you really have need of nothing because you are wealthy and as it results, it's created you to be indifferent and lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. And he says, because of that, I'll spew you out of my mouth like vomiting. And then we use this sometimes in evangelism, but he's on the outside trying to get in to this church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. I personally believe that Laodicea is a last day church. I'll take it a step farther, and I believe that Laodicea is a last day church, and it has America in view as we look at it. Because of the list of people that I just um, um, mentioned, uh, what happens here, it seems to make itself all the way around the world. And the irony of, 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 of teaching the health and wealth um, gospel at Calvary Chapel, Carne. Can you, see, can you see how ridiculous this is? We're talking about, um, Bastia said that, that he has people that are dying, that are coming to him from the Dominican Republic. Um, the guy who's running for president in Dominican Republic, on his ticket and his main um, message that he's getting out to vote for him is that he will deport any Haitians that are in the Dominican Republic. Many Haitians have to go there because that's the only place they can make any money to send money home. So what's happening there right now? No money. People are dying as I'm talking here this evening. And what is the American church doing? Well, much of where we're headed tonight is what the scripture has to say about doing business and um, teaching this gospel that isn't taught. We're gonna see what the, the scriptures have to say about money how it should be used, and how it is abused. You guys ready to dive in? Let's go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. The parable of the rich fool. Chapter 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, Who made me a judge and an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take heed, look out, beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them saying, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I will pull down my barns and I'll build greater. And there I'll store my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many good years laid up for many years. Kick back, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose things will those things be when you have provided? So he who lays up treasures for himself uh, and is not rich towards God. Uh, this is not in my notes, but I think of 
Solomon. The Lord warned Solomon um, in a couple of areas. He said, don't multiply horses for yourself and don't multiply wives to yourselves. And so what does Solomon do? Uh, When we go to Megiddo, it's known as a place for Solomon's stables. He was, he was in the, what we would call today the automobile industry only with horses. He was the middleman. He would, um, Megiddo is on the main highway that would connect Egypt to Asia. And uh, he would have the horses there and he would multiply his horses and um, he was known for multiplying his horses and becoming very, very wealthy as a result of it. And then he was told not to multiply wives. Well, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the wisest man who ever walked on this planet did not listen to the Lord about his wealth and about all, all the women. And what happened when David got old, it says that his heart was turned away from the Lord because of all these women who worship these other gods. So there's the warning there to the wisest man who ever lived. Um, and, you know, his life, when the Lord talks about him, it's never in a positive. He says, consider the lilies of the field. Even Solomon in all of his glory wasn't arrayed like one of those. So that's sort of a, a dig or a burn, if you would, that he was actually using Solomon in the negative rather than, than in the positive. All right, let's turn over to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verse 18, the rich young ruler. Again, a, a man with abundance. Verse 18, now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. Remember that, because we'll be coming back to that too. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And the young man looks at him and said, all these I've kept from my youth. So the Lord is just really setting this guy up. So when Jesus heard these things, he said, okay, you only lack one thing. Just sell all that you have, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful. His countenance fell. He lost his joy, for he was very rich. See, he wasn't just a little rich. He was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he he had become sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when those who heard this, heard it said, they said, well, who could be saved if that's the case? And the Lord said, these things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Now we'll be talking about the balance of being a lover of money and money being amoral it might be coming up next. We need to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Actually, I want to start and read quite a bit of this. Let's go back to verse 3. 
The first part is just an exhortation that if you work for somebody, be a, be a good worker for them, honor them. And then he tells them, teach and exhort these things in verse two. Verse three says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, doesn't know nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words for which come envy and strife and rivalry and evil suspicions. Using the wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, now notice, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. The list that I just told you about of these men and women um, who suppose that doctrine um, is a means for them to make gain. Um, Paul, writing to the young pastor Timothy, says don't hang with them. Don't listen to them. From such withdraw yourself. So that's in order for you to withdraw yourself from somebody, I gotta tell you who that somebody is. Good place for an amen. You won't know who they are unless I say who they are. And I encourage you to be a Berean. If there was a name on that list that goes, uh, I don't know about that guy, check it out. That's easy enough to Google. But he says, verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and a certain we will carry nothing out. Job was extremely wealthy and um, he lost it all in one day. It was all a test to see how he would react when all of his wealth and his children were, were taken away in a single day. And this is what Job said. Naked I came into the world. Naked I'm gonna go out. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this the Bible says that Job did not sin. Having food and clothing with these things, be content. That brings up a question right now, are you? Are you content with what you have? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. In other words, the, the person who has a lot of money is vulnerable to more temptation because there's pretty much... He can do, do whatever he wants. I think there's a, a false sense of, of, um, of, of, of power that goes with this when a person has a lot of money. Um, now we get into verse 10, a very important verse. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So money is amoral. It can be used for good and it can be used for evil. We're taking a collection on Sunday. We don't take collections at Calvary Chapel. Sometimes a new person will corner me and say, why don't you guys take offerings here at Calvary? Well, I say we do from time to time. Um, we, we, when we get to talking about money, we say it's amoral. You can use it for good or it can be used for evil. But it's the, the desire. How much money is enough money to a multi-multi-millionaire? Answer, just a little bit more. They're never content with what they have, and it causes them to be pierced with many sorrows. Okay, now 
It's addressing the church. He's talking to Timothy. But you, O man of God, flee these things and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Um, Verse 17, suggest to those who are rich in this present age. Is that what it says? Command. Say it with authority. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. So now we're talking to a person who is a believer. He has the capacity, it's in his power to do good. And now in verse 18 he says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works. Ready to give willingly to share storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. The Lord is really good at his his bookkeeping. And how we use money, we're commanded, first of all, to warn the rich not to um, get puffed up or be haughty about it um, because the Lord's gonna bring all this into judgment and his motive. All right, let's turn to the book of James. Chapter five, I'll give him a moment to get there. If you're in Second Timothy, you wanna go past Hebrews and then you'll run into James. James chapter five, we'll look at the first eight verses here. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath." You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Therefore, and I'll read a little little bit farther for us, uh, the warning to them, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. So, you be patient too. Establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Another good place for an amen. Why don't we get it all involved with stuff and busyness and be preoccupied with how can I make more money? Instead, be patient. Uh, realize that we're pilgrims and strangers. We're just passing through. And as a result, we're to touch this world just really, really lightly, not get attached to it. And um, with that, let's add on to it by going to Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six, picking it up in verse 19. 
Yeah, let's pick it up in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Here's one to underline, for where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, if your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And here's the, the one verse we want to make sure we memorize, memorize for our study tonight. No one can serve two masters. For one will either hate, you'll hate the one and love the other, or else you'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. You can't have it both ways. It's one or the other. Now, the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat. What does that mean? It means you need a job and you need to work and you need to be the best worker on your job site. And um, so it's not saying that we don't make a living to, to take care of our families. No, we're commanded to do so. So, but you can't um, serve one. Uh, you might be a Christian carpenter. Uh, you might be um, um, a Christian gardener. You might be a worker at Kmart or Menards or something like that. But what you do, especially men, they like to identify their, themselves with the job or the occupation that they have. It should never be that way. You're always a Christian first, and then it's the title of your job. Good place for an amen again. And here we're just saying you can't have it both ways because you'll fall in love with the one. Therefore, now we have the therefore. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and a body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and you are more value than they. Which of you by worrying can add one cubic to his statute? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And here's a verse I talked about with Solomon. It was, it was his downfall, money and, and uh, his many wives. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, Another therefore, do not worry, saying what are we gonna eat or what are we gonna drink or what are we gonna wear? For after these things, the Gentiles or non-believers, this is what the world is caught up in. This is what advertising is all about. And um, they put uh, put it on in between um, movies or in between the news, what do you have? You have a commercial that you need one of these. For your heavenly Father knows that 
the things that you have need of. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, and he says it again, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I love this. If, if I'm, this isn't a suggestion. <laughs> Don't worry about tomorrow. If you're worried about something about tomorrow, you just lost your freedom for today. And if you're worried about something for tomorrow and you live that way, Lord's basically saying, go ahead and do it, but it's not gonna change the thing. It's not gonna add an inch to your height. It's not gonna make one bit of difference. So go ahead and worry if you want to, but it will not change a thing. Here's what I believe. I believe Satan would keep us busy. He would keep us busy buying and selling, stealing our time with business-seeking business and money. Go back to John chapter two before I take you to the Old Testament here. Go back to John two. The context of this sidetrack, and it was a big sidetrack tonight, is the Lord is so upset that they were actually making merchandise. In verse um, 16, do not make my house a house of merchandise. And we find in verse 14, as he drove them out, the money changers, they were doing business. It was all a business for them. And they were getting extremely rich by it. All right? Um, Go with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. I want to talk to you about who I believe is the author of busyness. If you're in Ezekiel 28, we're looking at verse 11. It switches... Um, in chapter 28 we have the the fall of the prince of Tyre from verse 1 all the way up to verse 10 then in verse 11 it says moreover the word of the Lord came to me son of man take a lamentation for the king of Tyre so there was a prince of Tyre but now we're talking about a different personage this guy is the king of Tyre Thus says the Lord God, you were, past tense, the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom and you were perfect in beauty. You were in the Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardex, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbles were pipes. He was evidently a creature that was an instrument of music at the same time. And he was perfect, at the seal of perfection, perfect in beauty. Can you imagine something being perfect in beauty? The most beautiful creature that was ever created is Lucifer. He was a seal of perfection. You were the anointed cherub who covered. So somehow he was in an over sight glory position of the highest authority and the highest rank in heaven. 
You are the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. Wow, I wonder what that was like. You were perfect in your ways from the days you were created. Um, There are those that say that Jesus and Lucifer were brothers. And um, this clearly tells us that all things were in John 1, all things were created by him and for him. All the angels were created by him. So Jesus Christ created Lucifer. He had a beginning. And then we have this big little word, until. Until iniquity was found in you. And this is what I find so interesting. We say that he fell because of pride. Well, that's what Isaiah says. It's true, but it's not what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel says in verse 16, by the abundance of your trading. Wow, that stops me in my tracks. What, what did that involve? You became filled with violence within and you sinned. So the reason for the fall is because of the abundance of your trading. Well, what kind of trading was he involved in? I don't know. But he is the author of busyness. Um, who's, who was it? Was it Spurgeon who said it? He says Satan isn't busy. He's the author of busy. And he's referring to this verse right here. By the abundance of your trading, that's what Solomon was into with the horses. That's the reason for the fall. Busyness. And you became filled with violence within and you sinned. So Isaiah said it was his pride, but Ezekiel said no. He was, he was in some sort of trading interaction that caused this. And he says, therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering angel, from the midst of the, of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. Notice by the iniquity, there it is again, of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from the midst. I devoured you and I turned you ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you and all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you uh, you have become a whore and you shall be no more forever. Praise the Lord for that. He not only had a beginning, but he's gonna have an end. But the very reason for the fall, saying, Dwight, what's the big deal with this? Because what we've adopted in our culture today is the art of busyness and of being involved with so much that it can lead to violence within. It can lead us to do irrational things. So as we look at money tonight, and we look that, let's go back to um, verse 17, verse 18 to the end. So Jesus answered and said to him, what sign do you show us as you do these things? In other words, who do you think you are kicking over our money tables? And Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days 
I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and it still wasn't done. It was still being worked on in Jesus' time. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scriptures and the words which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now notice verse 24 and 25. So people were believing in him, but then he says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. Now verse 25, and had no need that anyone should testify of him For notice it says, for he knew what was in man. It leads to this question, what is in man? That leads us to Romans 7. And Paul talks about and answers this question. What is in all men? Well, Romans 7 verse 18 says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So the Lord asks the question, I know it's in every man. What's in every man? Well, nothing good, nothing. Um, to will is, it's, to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. Let's go back and read this in context. Um, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. That's what dwells in me. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. That's what Jesus knew was in all men. If I then do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And again, what's in all men? For I know in me. In my flesh, nothing good dwells. Verse 19, for the good that I will to do, I don't do it. But the evil that I do not want to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. I call it the 24-hour battle, the flesh against the spirit. That's why we have to die daily. That's why we need to um, be spiritually fed on a continual basis. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that's in this book. How's your diet? Um, and this law brings me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my members and now we have amazing grace oh wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death I'm sunk the Lord knows what's inside of me he knows that I want to do the right thing but I can't because I got this war with my flesh and my spirit going on all the time I don't stand a chance But then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with 
the flesh, the law of sin. And you can't, uh, there shouldn't be a break here. Uh, Here's the big therefore with everything that Paul was telling us about that's inside of us. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Who's gonna win the battle between the flesh and the spirit? The answer is the one that you feed the, the most. Are you feeding the flesh more than you feed the spirit? Now there wouldn't be one person who would disagree with me tonight if I asked the question, what's more important, to feed your spirit or to feed your flesh. Every person here would say amen till it's more important to feed your spirit. Amen? We all agree with that. And we all don't do that. And what, what could happen? The devil's right here. The accuser of the brethren is one of his titles. And you call yourself a Christian. Just look at that. Look what you thought. Look what you said. Look what you did. And you call yourself a Christian? All you have to tell that devil's to go take a hike. So that matter's been taken care of. He who knew no sin became sin for me, and then he gave me his righteousness. Take a hike, Satan. Accuser of the brethren. I know I don't do what I'm supposed to. I know that. And the Lord says at the last part of John 2 that he knows what's in every man, and he would not give himself to, to man because he knew what was in him. No, he did a whole lot more. He died for us. We'll close tonight. Uh, in Luke chapter 10, and I couldn't believe that those guys sang this song, um, the worship team, and I actually added this to my notes after I was done studying. The Lord gave it to me as I was going home from the office. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, the worship team sang this song tonight, one thing. Just one thing that's important to do. And the song is really about this story, the contrast between Mary and Martha are contrasted here. In verse 38 it says, Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now, Martha was distracted with much serving. She was anxious. And she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work all by myself? She was busy, 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 busy. And therefore, tell her to help me, Lord. But Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried. Oh, didn't we read quite a bit about worry in Matthew chapter six? What was the Lord's suggestion about it? Don't do it. Do it if you want to. It's not gonna change a thing. What did he tell Martha? I always think of Martha, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It just sort of, there should be one more Martha there. Martha, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled and anxious about many things. But one thing is needed, and that was the name of that song. And I couldn't believe the worship team Played it tonight. I said, that's perfect. That's how we're closing things up. Because it's been a pretty straightforward, serious message against those people who are rich. Strong words. Would not you agree? Many warnings. Um, And uh, getting caught up in busyness to the point that 
what's really important. So verse 42, one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Which one is winning? The war in your life with, between the flesh and the spirit? The answer is the one that gets fed the most. The warning tonight is being careful about being so busy that you don't have time to sit at the Lord's feet. Well, you could have been doing something else tonight. Um, you could have been busy getting things done that need to be done. Good place for an amen? But instead, what are you doing? I commend you because you're doing the right thing. And um, leave this place without any worries about tomorrow and leave this place thinking that the one thing, the, really the one thing that I need more than anything else is what the Lord commended Mary here. And that is sitting down and simply reading the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, going through all of John chapter two is better than anything that you had for supper tonight. Amen? Let's stand on close the prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for John chapter two, Lord. As we see that we live in a country that is the church of Laodicea, we see many famous, well-known word faith teachers that tell us that if we're not feeling well or not healthy, that the problem is ours and we have a lack of faith, and that we should always be healthy and always be wealthy. But Lord, as we've seen in your word tonight, just the opposite is true. That the thing that really needs to be taken care of is um, being in your word, sitting at your feet, and uh, the faith that we have, you tell us then can grow, because faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by your word. So Lord, as we make our way through the Gospel of John, please continue to bless it. In closing, we pray for what's going on in Haiti, and that um, um, we would respond in a generous way this Sunday, and um, holding up the people in the country of Haiti to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It says, now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Now, Martha was distracted with much serving. She was anxious. And she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work all by myself? She was busy, 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 busy. And therefore, tell her to help me, Lord. But Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried. Oh, didn't we read quite a bit about worry in Matthew chapter six? What was the Lord's suggestion about it? Don't do it. Do it if you want to. It's not gonna change a thing. What did he tell Martha? I always think of Martha, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It just sort of, there should be one more Martha there. Martha, Martha, Martha. You are worried and troubled and anxious about many things. But one thing is needed, and that was the name of that song. And I couldn't believe the worship team played it tonight. I said, that's perfect. That's how we're closing things up. Because it's been a pretty straightforward, serious message against those people who are rich. Strong words, would not you agree? 
many warnings. Um, and uh, getting caught up in busyness to the point that what's really important. So verse 42, one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Which one is winning? The war in your life with, between the flesh and the spirit? The answer is the one that gets fed the most. The warning tonight is being careful about being so busy that you don't have time to sit at the Lord's feet. Oh, you could have been doing something else tonight. Um, You could have been busy getting things done that need to be done. Good place for an amen. But instead, what are you doing? I commend you because you're doing the right thing. And um, leave this place without any worries about tomorrow. And leave this place thinking that the one thing, really the one thing that I need more than anything else is what the Lord commended Mary here. And that is sitting down and simply reading the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, going through all of John chapter two is better than anything that you had for supper tonight. Amen? Let's stand and close the prayer. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for John chapter 2, Lord, as we see that we live in a country that is the church of Laodicea. We see many famous, well-known word faith teachers that tell us that if we're not feeling well or not healthy, that the problem is ours and we have a lack of faith, and that we should always be healthy and always be wealthy. But Lord, as we've seen in your word tonight, just the opposite is true. That the thing that really needs to be taken care of is um, being in your word, sitting at your feet. And uh, the faith that we have, you tell us then can grow because faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by your word. So Lord, as we make our way through the Gospel of John, please continue to bless it. In closing, we pray for what's going on in Haiti and that um, um, we would respond in a generous way this Sunday and um, holding up the people in the country of Haiti to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.